Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 231 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the Lonnie Zamora 1964 UFO incident in Socorro, New Mexico. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. In 1964, New Mexico police officer Lonnie Zamora was following a car when he heard an explosion. Fearing a local dynamite shack had blown up, he abandoned pursuit and went to the site of the shack. What he saw startled him. There was an egg-shaped craft sitting on the ground, and he briefly saw two humanoids outside of it before the craft took off, leaving physical traces behind. The result was one of the most intriguing UFO cases of the 1960s. So who was Lonnie Zamora? What did he see? And what makes this case so intriguing? And that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Jimmy, today's mystery is an example of a close encounter of the third kind. So where does that term come from and what does it mean? It comes from a system for classifying UFO sightings that was developed by the astronomer J. Allen Hynek, who worked for the Air Force's UFO study, Project Blue Book, in the 1950s and 1960s. Basically, Hynek had six types of sightings, three of which were distant sightings and three of which were close up enough to allow the witnesses to see significant detail on a UFO. Of the three close up sightings, the first kind involved only a visual sighting, but within about 500 feet or less so that you could see significant detail, not just a light in the sky. Close encounters of the second kind involved the object interacting with its environment in some way, such as interfering with the functioning of electronic devices, scaring animals, or leaving physical traces on the ground. And close encounters of the third kind involved seeing or encountering the occupants of an object. Today's mystery involves an object that left traces on the ground, including imprints of its landing gear and burned plants, so it was a close encounter of the second kind, but it also involved the sighting of two apparent occupants, so it was also a close encounter of the third kind. Where does our story begin today? In the town of Socorro in central New Mexico. Today, there are about 8,000 people living there, and back in the 1960s, there were about 5,500 people, so it's not a big place. And who's the central figure of our story? His name is Lonnie Zamora. He was born in 1933, so he was about 31 years old at the time of the event. He had been on the Socorro Police Force for about five years, and he was currently working the shift from 2 p.m. to 10 p.m., sort of the afternoon to evening shift. Partway through this shift, at about 5.45 p.m. on April 24, 1964, Officer Zamora was out on patrol. He saw a black Chevrolet speeding by that he thought was being driven by a young man he knew. The man's name was Vivian Reynolds, and he was 17 years old, and Officer Zamora gave chase to the speeding vehicle. 
But he heard an explosion, and it occurred to him that there was a nearby dynamite shack, which he feared might have blown up. He also saw a flame in the sky to the southwest near the shack. So he abandoned his chase of the speeding car and went to see if anything had happened to the shack and if anybody there needed help. The flame he saw was bluish and orange and was also narrow. He couldn't tell how big it was, and he couldn't focus on it while he was driving. However, it looked narrower at the top than at the bottom, and he didn't see anything on top of the flame. He also heard a noise, which was like a roaring sound, and it lasted about 10 seconds. It started at a high pitch, changed to a lower pitch, and then stopped. At this point, Officer Zamora was driving on a gravel road toward the dynamite shack with his windows open. He then started ascending a rough, somewhat steep hill that was about 60 feet tall. But he had to back up and try it more than once because of how loose the gravel and rock he was driving on was. He didn't make it all the way to the top until his third try. And what did he see then? After he got to the top, he started driving westward on the gravel road, but he didn't see anything for about 15 or 20 seconds. He was looking around for the dynamite shack because he didn't remember exactly where it was. Then he spotted a shiny object to the south, about 150 to 200 yards away, in an arroyo or gully. According to his description of the event, the Air Force Project Blue Book report said, It was off the road. At first glance, I stopped. It looked at first like a car turned upside down. I thought some kids might have turned over. I saw two people in white coveralls very close to the object. One of these persons seemed to turn and look straight at my car and seemed startled, seemed to jump quickly somewhat. At this time, I started moving my car towards them quickly with the idea to help. I had stopped only about a couple seconds. The object was like aluminum. It was whitish against the moss background, but not chrome. I at first glance took it to be an overturned white car. The car appeared turned up like standing on radiator or on trunk at this first glance. The only time I saw these two persons was when I had stopped for possibly two seconds or so to glance at the object. I don't recall noting any particular shape or possibly any hats or headgear. These persons appeared normal in shape, but possibly they were small adults or large kids. Officer Zamora then drove towards the scene, and as he did so, he radioed the sheriff's office telling them he had a possible 1044 or accident. And he said that he would be 10-6 or busy out of his police vehicle to check on the overturned car. He then got out of his vehicle, and at this point, he heard two or three thumping sounds, like someone hammering or shutting a door hard. He'd hardly turned around when he heard a roaring sound begin again. It started low in pitch and then rose in frequency, as well as getting louder. It became really loud. At the same time, he saw a flame which was under the object, which turned out not to be a car now that he had a better look at it. Instead, it was an oblong circle or oval shape. It was smooth. He did not see any windows or doors on it, though he did see a red insignia on it, something we'll talk more about later. The flame coming from underneath it was blue with some orange at the bottom like he'd seen before. And it wasn't making any smoke, though it was kicking up some dust on the ground. He saw the object rise straight up from the ground slowly, 
but it didn't go very high. From the roar it was making, Officer Zamora was afraid it might explode, so he started to run with his head turned towards the object, which caused him to bump his leg on the back fender of his car and fall down, at which point he lost his glasses. He then kept running with the car between him and the object and glanced back a couple of times. He noted that the object had risen up out of the arroyo to the level of the car about 20 to 25 feet from where it had been on the floor of the arroyo. According to Officer Zamora, I was still running and I jumped just over the hill. I stopped because I did not hear the roar. I was scared of the roar and I had planned to continue running down the hill. I turned around toward the object and at the same time put my head toward the ground, covering my face with my arms. Being that there was no roar, I looked up and I saw the object going away from me in a southwest direction. When the roar stopped, I heard a sharp tone whine from a high tone to a low tone. At end of roar was this whine, and the whine lasted maybe a second. There was complete silence about the object. That's when I lifted up my head and saw the object going away from me. It did not come any closer to me. It appeared to go in a straight line and at the same height, possibly 10 to 15 feet from ground, and it cleared the dynamite shack by about 3 feet. The shack was about 8 feet high. The object was traveling very fast. It seemed to rise up and take off immediately across country. I ran back to my car, and as I ran back, I kept an eye on the object. I picked up my glasses, got into the car, and radioed to Nep Lopez, the radio operator, to look out of the window to see if you can see an object. He asked, what is it? I answered, it looks like a balloon. I don't know if he saw it. If Nep looked out of his window, which faces north, he couldn't have seen it. I did not tell him at the moment which window to look out of. As I was calling Nep, I could still see the object. The object seemed to lift up slowly and to get small in the distance very fast. It seemed to just clear the Box Canyon or in Mile Canyon Mountain. It disappeared as it went over the mountains. It had no flame whatsoever as it was traveling over the ground and no smoke or noise. Officer Zamora then asked the radio operator to have another officer, Sergeant Chavez, to come out to where he was. While he was waiting for Sergeant Chavez, he went down into the arroyo where the object had been, and he noted that the brush was burning in several places. Officer Zamora also got out a pen and drew a picture of the insignia that he had seen on the object. At that time, I heard Sergeant Chavez calling me on radio from my location, and I returned to my car and told him he was looking at me. Then Sergeant Chavez came up, asked me what the trouble was because I was sweating, and he told me I was white, very pale. I asked the sergeant to see what I saw, and that was the burning brush. Then Sergeant Chavez and I went to the spot, and Sergeant Chavez pointed out the tracks. By the tracks, Officer Zamora means indentations in the ground. When he'd first seen the object, back when he thought it was still a car, he noticed two legs sticking out from underneath it, but he didn't pay much attention to them. The metal legs were slanted towards the ground, and on reflection, he concluded that they were holding the object about three and a half feet off the ground. His entire time viewing the object had been very brief. I can't tell how long I saw the object the second time, the clear time. Possibly 20 seconds, just a guess. From the time I got out of the car, glanced at the object, ran from object, jumped over edge of hill, and then got back to the car and radioed as the object disappeared. And that was the basic experience from beginning to end. 
And what happened afterward? Zamoro and Chavez continued to examine the site where the object had landed. In his book, Encounter in the Desert, The Case for Alien Contact at Socorro, ufologist Kevin Randall writes, The bush that was nearly under the center of the craft was still smoldering, and there were imprints in the ground that suggested something heavy had set down there. Chavez and Zamora began to search the ground at the landing site. Besides the smoking bush, there were several areas where they saw burned clumps of range grass. They found four impressions that had been pressed into the ground. These were wedge-shaped, about four inches by eight inches, and three to four inches deep. The local newspaper, the El Defensor Chieftain, reported, They did not appear to be made by an object striking the earth with great force, but by an object of considerable weight settling to earth at slow speed and not moving after touching the ground. Chavez examined the bush that was near the center of the four landing pad impressions. While it was still smoking, Chavez said that it was cool to the touch. Soon, several other men arrived. Uh, two were police officials and one was a cattle inspector. They had all heard the exchange over the police radio and had driven out to see what was up. One of the men had a camera and he took pictures of the site. By 7 p.m., the sunlight was fading and they all split up with Zamora and Chavez going back to the police station. What did Zamora make of his experience? Did he think he had witnessed a craft from another world? No, in fact, he didn't believe in alien craft. In fact, he was asked about that in an interview on local radio station KSRC. Uh, what was your immediate reaction as soon as you realized that this thing might be an object from outer space? Well, I didn't think it would be an object from outer space because I, I don't believe in, in things like that from outer space. So Zamora didn't think that it was an object from outer space. Instead, it was assumed that it must have been a test of some military system, such as from the nearby White Sands Missile Range or Holloman Air Force Base, both of which are in New Mexico. So they called Captain Richard Holder of White Sands Missile Range. Also, a local FBI agent named Arthur Burns became involved. Holder and Burns were the first two out-of-town officials to arrive, and they came to the Socorro police station where they questioned Zamora. You said that Zamora had seen an insignia of some kind on the side of the object. What was it he saw? This has been the source of endless trouble in the UFO community because of an idea that Captain Holder had. He suggested that they withhold the description of the symbol. At this point, they didn't know if there were any other witnesses to the event or if others had seen the object flying. And so if they kept quiet about what the symbol looked like, they could use that to weed out fake witnesses who misdescribed the symbol. It's a good idea in principle, and police often withhold details of an investigation for just this purpose. But what happened was that distorted versions of the symbol were published in the press leading to confusion. One symbol had an inverted V with three horizontal lines sitting below it. Another had an inverted V with three horizontal lines going through it, like the letter A with a couple of extra crossbars. And a third had an inverted V with two horizontal lines inside it and one above it. However, each of these was incorrect and we now know what the original symbol looked like. 
it did have an inverted V, but with one vertical line inside it, making it look kind of like an arrowhead. It also had a horizontal line below the inverted V and a curved arc above the V. We know this was the correct one for a variety of reasons, including that Officer Zamora drew it in his own hand shortly after seeing the craft, and he signed his name to the drawing, so this is the correct one. However, this is merely a matter of curiosity that won't really come into our story again. Whatever the symbol was, it remains unidentified. What happened after Officer Zamora was questioned at the police station? The story blew up and got into the press. The Air Force's Project Blue Book got involved and did extensive research on it. This research was done in part by Blue Book's civilian consultant, J. Allen Hynek. Also, some purely civilian UFO research groups got involved, including the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, or APRO, the National Investigative Committee on Aerial Phenomena, or NICAP, the UFO Mutual Network, or MUFON, didn't exist at the time, but they did later discuss the case extensively. And what was Project Blue Book's opinion of the case? Blue Book placed the sightings reported to it in different categories. The most significant of these was unidentified. This was significant because it meant that the case could not be explained conventionally, so it might be an alien craft. However, in the 1960s, Blue Book did not want to place sightings into this category. Instead, they wanted to place them in conventional categories. And they had an alternative classification for some sightings they couldn't explain. This category was insufficient data for a scientific analysis. They could put items into that category if they couldn't explain them, but they didn't have a lot of good evidence but they did have good evidence in the Socorro case. And so they ended up putting it in the unexplained category anyway, despite their reluctance to do so. In an unpublished memoir of his time with Project Blue Book, its head at the time, Major Hector Quintanilla, wrote that, I was determined to solve the Socorro case, and come hell or high water, I was going to find the vehicle or stimulus. But, he couldn't, and so he ended up classifying the Sakaro case as unidentified. I labeled the case unidentified, and then the UFO buffs and hobby clubs had themselves a field day. According to them, here was proof that our beloved planet had been visited by an extraterrestrial vehicle. Although I labeled the case unidentified, I've never been satisfied with that classification. I always felt that too many essential elements of the case were missing. There are the intangible elements which are impossible to check, so the solution to the case could very well be lying dormant in Lonnie Zamora's head. So, for lack of an explanation, they ended up classifying it as unidentified. What did J. Allen Hynek think of the case? Although he later came to think that the extraterrestrial hypothesis should be taken seriously, in the 1960s, Hynek still thought this was unlikely. That explains why he wrote... No doubt was left in my mind, but that NICAP and APRO, and possibly others, would consider this the best authenticated landing sighting on record. They will use it, very likely, as a lever for a congressional investigation, and will deride any attempt to explain it away as a balloon, conventional helicopter, etc. You can hear how he had concerns at the time that the case would give fuel to UFO groups like NICAP and APRO, but after he became open to the extraterrestrial hypothesis, 
he himself cited Sakaro as a prime case. What happened to Lonnie Zamora in later years? According to Kevin Randall, he remained a police officer for 10 years after the sighting. He would eventually be chased from his job on the police force by the ridicule directed at him after his flying saucer sighting became public. He remained in Socorro and took another job of the city as a landfill supervisor until he retired. He was reluctant to speak with anyone about the sighting because of the pressures he felt, but seemed to have been a kindly, friendly man with a good reputation in town and who hosted barbecues at his home, with the only requirement that they not talk about UFOs. Officer Zamora passed on to his reward in 2009, and in 2012, the town of Socorro had an acrylic painting made to honor his legacy. The painting is located out of doors in public so that people can see it, so he's fondly remembered. Before we move on to our theories and perspectives, we'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Christina T., Dennis G., Jeffrey F., N.R., and A.J.E. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at AaronV.com. A-A-R-O-N-V.com. Making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the catechism of the Catholic Church. By Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. Jimmy, what theories are there about the Socorro UFO sighting? A variety of them have been proposed, including that it was the misidentification of a natural phenomenon, a test of secret technology, a hoax, and, of course, that it was an alien, because it's always (laughs) always aliens. (laughs) So before we look at those possibilities, what can we say about the sighting from the faith perspective? Would it have implications for the faith if it turned out it was alien? Not really. Uh, The Christian faith doesn't have a problem with the existence of intelligent alien life. It would just mean that God has created intelligent beings elsewhere like he did here. And we already know that he created other intelligent beings because that's what angels are. If it turned out that he created other physical intelligent beings, that would just mean he made more creatures like us. Of course, there would be a lot of additional questions to answer if it turned out that intelligent alien life exists. But we talked about those questions back in episode 55 on aliens and religion. So listeners can go back to mysterious.fm slash 55 and check that out. So then what can we say about the Socorro UFO sighting from the reason perspective? Could it have been the misidentification of a natural phenomenon? I've actually seen this proposed. Uh, The British skeptical author Stuart Campbell has written, It is the second brightest star, Canopus, which has caused more reports. A mirage of Canopus was the object reported by police patrolman Lonnie Zamora over Socorro, New Mexico, in April 1964. This appears to have been caused by an atmospheric inversion over the Rio Grande Valley, south of the town. Astronomer Alan Hynek frequently challenged skeptics to explain this report, which he regarded as the epitome of the UFO phenomenon apparently unaware that it had an astronomical explanation. I think this is just silly. 
in the first place, Campbell is not an astronomer, while J. Allen Hynek was, and he was no stranger to stars being misidentified as UFOs. So, in fact, he checked for that all the time. Also, this occurred at 5.45 p.m., which was more than an hour before sunset in Socorro at the time. However, Campbell's theory explains none of the facts in this case. It doesn't explain the roaring sound that first attracted Zamora's attention. It doesn't explain the flame he saw in the sky. It doesn't explain the craft he saw on the ground. It doesn't explain him seeing the craft take off and fly away. It doesn't explain the burned plants or the indentations that were found on the ground after it left. It doesn't explain the two people Zamora saw. It doesn't explain anything Zamora experienced. So I think Campbell's theory is just silly. What about the idea that Zamora witnessed part of a secret test of some kind of technology? Blue Book checked on that, but as Kevin Randall notes, They found no secret project located at Holloman that would explain the sighting. Searches of the various defense contractors and other research organizations provided no answer. Documentation of the military activities at Holloman, White Sands, and Kirtland provide no answer. In fact, Quintanilla had queried the White House command post and was told that the only thing they had going on were U-2 flights, which obviously wasn't the answer. Hector Quintanilla also later thought that it might have been a test of a lunar lander that was later used when we went to our sister planet, the moon. But on checking that out, he discovered that lunar landers weren't operational in 1964. However, there was another NASA moon-related project that many in the skeptical community have proposed as an explanation. I'll let Brian Dunning of the Skeptoid podcast explain this theory. For some time, there's been an interesting candidate explanation floating around. At that time in 1964, NASA was testing an early engineering model of Surveyor, the lunar probe that went to the moon in 1966. This testing was done out of Holloman Air Force Base in New Mexico at the White Sands Missile Range, and researchers have found records showing that the model was being carried by helicopter on the same day, although earlier in the morning, as Lonnie Zamora's sighting. Some have even pointed to early logos of various Hughes subsidiaries, Surveyor was built by Hughes Aircraft, as possible matches for the insignia drawn by Zamora. Surveyor landed with rockets, the same loud rockets that Zamora heard. And what would Hughes technicians be wearing besides white coveralls? In some articles describing this theory, it appears to be a virtual lock. Maybe I'm just a skeptic, but I find it to be a terrible explanation. For one thing, Holloman is directly adjacent to the White Sands Missile Range where the surveyor testing was done. Yet Socorro is a full 150 kilometers away. It can hardly be argued that the engineers strayed slightly outside the boundaries. For another, never once in the recorded history of NASA or the Air Force have they transported their experimental craft far from their remote desert test facilities and directly into populated towns to test them, and it strains credibility to conclude that they might have felt that doing so was the best course in this case. Surveyor was a tripod of aluminum trusses with a couple boxes at its base. By no remote description can it be said to look like an egg, an oval, a football, or an overturned car. 
It doesn't even have a flat surface on which an insignia could appear. And if it did, it would, like every piece of hardware NASA had ever flown, have had the NASA logo displayed, not some obscure Hughes subsidiary logo. Surveyor had never been designed with any takeoff ability. Its retros slowed its descent, then it fell the final three meters to the surface where it stayed. Zamora's description of a craft taking off and flying away had nothing to do with anything related to Surveyor. Anyway, the engineering model had to be transported by helicopter, and Zamora probably would have noticed that. If the claim is that the oval-shaped craft that Zamora saw take off was the Air Force helicopter, then he was the most monumental ignoramus in the history of ignoramuses, and I don't hear anyone saying that. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say no. Whatever Lonnie Zamora saw was most definitely not the Surveyor engineering model from Holloman. And I agree with that. The surveyor theory does not fit the facts of the case. Among other things, the location is wrong. It's around 100 miles away. The time of day is wrong, morning versus evening. It doesn't explain the flame that Zamora saw when the craft took off because surveyor can't take off. Surveyor also doesn't look like a big egg, and Zamora would have seen a helicopter hoisting it up into the air because that's how they moved it. So. This does not look like what Officer Zamora witnessed. It wasn't a secret military or NASA test. What about the idea that this was a hoax? In this case, we'd have to ask who was involved in the hoax. So let's start with Lonnie Zamora. On this theory, he would have needed to set fire to the plants at the landing site and also make the impressions on the ground that other people saw. But we need to ask how probable this is. In later years, he got tired of talking about the encounter and wouldn't discuss it with people. That's not exactly the behavior you'd expect of a hoaxer who would want to play up the event. However, it's always possible that he got tired of the hoax, so that's not definitive proof. More to the point, though, there is his behavior immediately after the event. And in the radio interview we heard the clip from, he dismissed the idea that it was an object from outer space. He said he didn't believe in such things. That's very unlikely if he had just hoaxed the incident. It's very unlikely he would say something like that. The immediate aftermath of pulling off a hoax is exactly when a hoaxer would be playing it up. There's also J. Allen Hynek's early assessment of Zamora, which was, Zamora is an unimaginative cop of an old Socorro family, incapable of hoax, and he's pretty sore at being regarded as a romancer. It took at least half an hour to thaw him out. By which Heineck meant that Zamora didn't even want to talk with him about what had happened just shortly before. So he also noticed that Zamora was displaying non-hoaxer behavior from the beginning. But we don't have to rely just on Officer Zamora because other people heard and saw the object. Three different people called the Socorro police station to report the object, so others definitely heard it. Also, a local gas station manager, a man named Opal Grinder, had a couple stop where he worked, and they reported seeing the object. Kevin Randall writes, Opal Grinder was on duty as manager at the Whiting Brothers gas station on the main north-south highway through Socorro late on the evening of April 24th. A car, described later as a light green Cadillac, stopped at the station. These were the days before self-service when those working at the station pumped the gas, washed the windows, 
checked the oil, collected the money, and often engaged drivers in a bit of conversation while all this was going on. The car held five people, the driver, his wife, and three children. They were apparently on their way home, and Grinder said that he thought they were from Colorado. The driver, who had obviously stepped out of the car, told Grinder, Your aircraft sure fly low around here. He said that an aircraft had nearly taken off the roof of his car. They were on the south side of Socorro, north of the airport, and driving north on Highway 85, later the route of Interstate 25, when the aircraft flew over them. The driver thought the craft was in some kind of trouble because he had seen a police car pull off the road and head in the direction of the craft. So this was an independent motorist who had seen the craft and Officer Zamora heading in the direction of it. All that suggests that if this was a hoax, Officer Zamora wasn't in on it. Could the hoax have been done by someone else? Well, the question would be, who did it? One suggestion that's been made that it was the mayor of the town who would have been Zamora's boss and could conceivably have ordered Zamora to take part in this situation. It's been claimed that he owned the property on which the sighting took place and that this was part of a scheme to attract tourists to the area. However, this turns out not to be true. The land was actually owned by somebody else and no evidence has emerged to support the theory that the mayor was behind it. Could it have been someone else? One view that has been proposed is that it was done by students at a local university. This was suggested by a man named Sterling Colgate, who had been president of the New Mexico Institute of Mining and Technology. He wrote about it in a short reply he penned on a letter that he got from two-time Nobel laureate Dr. Linus Pauling. Uh, Linus Pauling is the vitamin C guy. And he had written him and asked about what he thought about the Socorro incident. Back to Brian Dunning of Skeptoid. After his death, a letter was found in Pauling's files from 1968, which he'd sent to Sterling Colgate, then president of New Mexico Tech, and received a handwritten reply on the bottom. As a P.S. to his letter, Pauling had asked Colgate what the people at New Mexico Tech thought about the Lonnie Zamora incident and Colgate scrawled back, I have good indication of student who engineered the hoax. The student has left. Cheers, Sterling. Students at tech universities have a long and time-honored tradition of pranking, and it turns out that Lonnie Zamora had worked on campus for several years, where he had developed a reputation for being somewhat rigid and impatient with the students. Consequently, he was not overlooked by those with mischief on their minds when he became a police officer. UFO researcher Tony Bregalia corresponded with Dr. Colgate by email several times in 2012, as well as with two others from New Mexico Tech, to get some more of the story, although no former students' names were forthcoming. What it came down to was this. The Energetics Lab on campus stocked all kinds of pyrotechnics more than enough to make all the audio and visual rocket and explosion sounds that Zamora saw and heard, as well as the burned scrub. White lab suits were conveniently available. And in the exact words of the university president himself, the craft itself consisted of a candle in a balloon, not sophisticated. With one driver to possibly lure Zamora to the scene by speeding, perhaps another to tow the big white balloon off into the distance at high speed when it took off. 
It's also noteworthy that in the Air Force report, when Zamora radioed in and was asked what it looked like, his exact words were, it looks like a balloon. And without concluding that this is definitely the correct explanation, that's the one that Skeptoid settles on. What do you think of this explanation? I understand why it would be attractive from a skeptical perspective, but I'm not at all convinced. In the first place, how would Sterling Colgate know about this? Uh, He wrote the letter to Pauling in 1968, but he had not been at New Mexico Tech in 1964 when the Socorro incident happened, so he would have had to learn about it from someone after the fact. But just because there was a rumor going around campus that students had done it as a prank doesn't mean that the rumor is accurate. What we don't have is anyone fessing up and explaining how it was done. It could have been started as just an idle rumor on campus with people speculating about what might have happened. So this isn't proof at all. It's just a story that was circulating, and it could have been started as a result of the tensions between the local constabulary and the students at the university. You know, hey, remember when that police officer saw the UFO? I I bet that was one of us getting back at the guy. We sure showed him. Did Hynek or the other UFO researchers who looked into the incident consider the idea that it could have been a hoax? Absolutely. In fact, Hynek actively considered the hoax hypothesis from the beginning, and he checked it out. But later in 1964, he wrote, With respect to the Socorro case, I wish I could substantiate the idea that it was a hoax or a hallucination. Unfortunately, I cannot. And it's easy to see why, because let's consider how the hoax would have had to work. Zamora's whole experience only lasted a couple of minutes, and he only saw the object for about 20 seconds. So Officer Zamora is chasing a speeding young person who he knows, or thinks he knows. On Skeptoid, Brian Dunning suggests that this man was a Confederate whose job was to draw Zamora to the correct location. But the young man... Zamora thought he was chasing was only 17 years old, making him too young to be a student at New Mexico Tech. So that's a strike against the theory. Then Zamora hears a roaring sound. He thinks of the nearby dynamite shack and decides to abandon pursuit in order to investigate. If this were a hoax, the roaring sound would have needed to be produced by a rocket or by audio equipment. If the latter they'd have to get the audio equipment away from the site in very short order to keep Zamora from seeing it. And whatever produced the noise, the hoaxers would need to be sure that Officer Zamora would hear it during the middle of his pursuit of the car, that he'd think of the dynamite shack whose location he wasn't entirely sure of, or that at least he'd break off the pursuit and come to investigate. Otherwise, they'd have done all their work setting up the hoax for nothing. Both of the assumptions that he'd hear the sound and that he'd decide to stop what he was doing and investigate are very big jumps. This is a really improbable scenario. If I were going to design a hoax, I wouldn't plan it this way. There would be too much risk of having it not come up off at all and me just wasting my efforts if he had just kept driving or even not heard. The, the roar, then they would have wasted all their efforts. So I consider both of those strikes against this theory. What about the two guys that he saw standing next to the object? 
When Officer Zamora got to the scene, he saw the object on the floor of the Arroyo with two guys standing next to it in white overalls. I have something of a question of why guys doing a hoax would be wearing white coveralls. I mean, were they expecting to be seen? If so, why didn't they do something to make themselves look more alien? If not, why were they wearing white coveralls at all? Whatever the case, Officer Zamora did see them near the object, but they weren't there less than a minute later. So where did they go? If they didn't get into the object and take off with it, how did they get out of the area so fast? So that seems to be another strike against the theory. What about the way the object itself departed? Well, it made a big roaring noise with fire coming from underneath it to get airborne, at which point the fire switched off. Then once it was airborne, it took off and moved towards the horizon quite fast. So how did it do that if it was a hoax? Uh, Balloons float on the wind. So Officer Zamora would not have seen it moving away fast if it was just a balloon. But he did. So it wasn't just a balloon. On Skeptoid, Brian Dunning suggests that one of the hoaxers drove off in a vehicle that it was tethered to, causing it to retreat in a faster manner than just drifting on the wind. But then, why didn't Officer Zamora see the vehicle towing the balloon? I mean, this is a desert area. Why isn't it kicking up dust? And why didn't they find its tracks later when they investigated the site? You know, if if there was a tow vehicle, it should have left tracks, it should have been visible, it should have kicked up dust. These also seem to me to be strikes against the hoax hypothesis. So while the hoax explanation would be perhaps the best natural explanation for what Officer Zamora saw, it's a theory that has a bunch of strikes against it. As J. Allen Hynek wrote, The hoax hypothesis is, of course, one that suggests itself immediately. It is Air Force Major Quintanilla's and my opinion that both Officer Chavez and FBI agent Burns must have been in on the hoax if we adopt the hoax hypothesis. They testified that there were no tracks in the immediate neighborhood, and so that the hoaxers must themselves have arrived and left by balloon. Had it been a hoax, certainly some paraphernalia should have been left around if the pranksters beat a hasty retreat. But there was no equipment left at the site, so Heine concluded, Both Quintanilla and I find it impossible to dismiss it as a hoax unless we have some evidence that there was a hoax. And they didn't have such evidence, even though Blue Book and Hynek were trying to explain away sightings like this at this point. If they had such evidence, they would have classified it as a hoax, but they didn't, and so it went into the unknown category. Which, as you said, would include things like an extraterrestrial craft. Yes, at least it could indicate something exotic, whether that's aliens or interdimensionals or crypto-terrestrials, but something other than normal humans at any rate. Is there anything about the encounter that gives you pause with proposing an exotic explanation? There is the way the craft took off, which apparently involved using a rocket motor that produced the flame. The design of the craft itself looked rather similar to the famous 2004 Tic Tac that was filmed by the Navy here off the coast of San Diego. While we didn't see the Tic Tac taking off from the ground, its flight characteristics were such that I would be a little surprised if it used a rocket motor when taking off. Rocket motors seem a little primitive to me. They're more like familiar space technology that we had in the 1950s and 1960s 
and less like what an advanced alien race might use. However, I can't be definitive here. Presumably, whatever Officer Zamora saw was not meant to be an interstellar craft, but one meant only for local missions, you know, because it was so small. And there would have been a mothership elsewhere, you know, somewhere. And I can't be definite that a local craft like this would not have used a rocket motor as part of its flight cycle. So this is a question that gives me pause, but I don't think it's definitive either way. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on the Socorro UFO incident? What Officer Zamora saw is hard to explain with a conventional explanation. It wasn't the misidentification of a star like Canopus. It wasn't part of a secret military or NASA test because they checked for that. If it was a hoax, it wasn't one that Officer Zamora simply made up because other people saw and heard it. And while we have rumors that it was a hoax perpetrated by students of New Mexico Tech, it's implausible that they could have pulled it off given everything that was involved. And that would leave us with an exotic explanation like aliens. I'm not ready to say that it definitively had an exotic explanation, but it's a reasonable candidate for that. And Jimmy, what further resources can we offer? We'll have links to Kevin Randall's book, Encounter in the Desert, the case for alien contact at Socorro. Also links to information about the Lonnie Zamora or Socorro UFO incident, Stuart Campbell's Canopus Theory, the Skeptoid podcast on Lonnie Zamora, UFO Casebook on Lonnie Zamora, as well as additional articles and also that radio interview with him that we heard a clip from. Excellent. So that's it from us. What are your theories about the Socorro UFO encounter? You can let us know online by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world. You can post in the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord or call our mysterious feedback line at 619 619- 738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And I want to say a special word of thanks to Oasis Studio 7 that does the uh, video and animation work on Mysterious World. They also do other stuff, so be sure to check out their work. You can see it by going to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. And while you're there, I am trying to grow my channel. We recently passed uh, 30,000 subscribers, so on to 50,000. Please help us get there. I'd really appreciate it. So please do subscribe and be sure and hit the bell notification so that YouTube will actually tell you whenever we have a new video out for Mysterious World or any of the other videos I do. So, Jimmy, what are we going to be talking about next time? Next time, we're going to stay in New Mexico for another New Mexico mystery, this time a religious one. We're going to be talking about the famous spiral staircase at Loretto Chapel and who built it. Excellent. Folks, be sure to get your very own Mysterious World t-shirt, mug, and more in our merchandise shop at sqpn.com slash merch. That's M-E-R-C-H. You'll find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at mysterious.fm slash 231. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. 
Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fairvento Law PLLC, now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides of Michigan convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com. F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O law.com. And by Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at delivercontacts.com. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, The Secrets of Star Wars. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash Star Wars.